0: Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word as we continue forward together in the book of Acts. This is part four of this little sermon series on understanding and responding to persecution. And this is titled, Filled with the Holy Spirit. I'll read from verse 13 of chapter 4 through to verse 37. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the men who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem." And we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over forty years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So, when they heard it, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the Apostles' feet. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So, what is revival? Have you ever thought about what is revival? Have you ever longed for revival to occur around us during our lives so that we could see it with our own eyes? Experience the poured out presence of God together like that? Have you ever thought about that? Listen to this quote from a Presbyterian pastor, Duncan Campbell. It's from a message he gave called, When the Mountains Flowed Down, and it describes some of his experiences and thoughts on the revival which occurred from 1949 to 1953 in the Hebrides Islands of Lewis and Harris, off the northwestern coast of Scotland. Listen to what he says about revival. First, let me tell you what I mean by revival. An evangelistic campaign or special meeting is not revival. In a successful evangelistic campaign or crusade, there will be hundreds or even thousands of people making decisions for Jesus Christ, but the community remains untouched and the churches continue much the same as before the outreach. In revival, God moves... In the district, suddenly the community becomes God-conscious. The Spirit of God grips men and women in such a way that even work is given up as people give themselves to waiting upon God. In the midst of the Lewis Awakening, the parish minister at Barbos wrote these words. The Spirit of the Lord was resting wonderfully on the different townships of the region. His presence was in the homes of the people, on Meadow and Moorland, and even on the public roads. This presence of God is the supreme characteristic of a God-sent revival. Of the hundreds who found Jesus Christ during this time, fully 75% were saved before they came near a meeting or heard a sermon by myself or any other ministers in the parish. The power of God, the Spirit of God was moving in operation And the fear of God gripped the souls of men. This is God-sent revival as distinct from special efforts in the field of evangelism. So why do I bring up revival? Because that's what we see happening in the book of Acts. This God-sent, this God-wrought power that was on all the people of the area. Would you like to see that occur? I would like to see that occur. So may we pour out our hearts unto God and hopefully and expectantly await the outpouring of His Holy Spirit. Today we're going to look closely just at verse 31 of chapter 4. We're going to look at the context. The text tells us that when they had prayed, so that's the timing, and that they were assembled together. That's what was going on at the time. And then we'll see two answered prayers. The place was shaken and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And we'll see the power and presence of God, the way that these prayers are answered is through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit when they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about that. And as usual, some questions to bring this home personally, to know and to love and to obey God in your life, in your relationships, in your family. A little recap. In the first sermon on this section, we look more closely at Psalm two, noting a few simple biblical principles. Remember, we kind of looked through the entire text of Psalm two because the prayer of the saints is so centered on Psalm two. So here's some biblical principles that we learned from Psalm two that we want to keep in mind. All resistance against the Lord Jesus Christ is futile, it is complete vanity even all the collected power and knowledge of all mankind, that which has been discovered, that which has been lost, that which is known, that which will ever be known, all the power and knowledge of the collected powers of mankind, combined with all of the abilities of the entire demonic realm, every bit of power and wisdom and scheming and ability of the forces of evil cannot ever thwart this one man. Jesus Christ, the resurrected King of kings. And His plan for His people and His kingdom and this world, it shall be accomplished. That's the first thing that we learned. Next, the rebels against Jesus Christ, what do they hate? They hate His law. And they want to remove His holy standard from the face of the earth. They call them cords and bonds. That's how... The wicked see the law of God. But we Christians, we know the law of God sets us free as we learn to love Him and to love our neighbors. The law teaches us how to love God and how to love our neighbors. It doesn't tie us down. It frees us. But the rebels of God want the law of God thrown out of sight in every way. Out of the public square, out of the churches, out of the law of the land, out of public policy, they want it gone. They don't want it spoken of in the streets. They don't want the name of Jesus Christ preached in the streets. Next, such rebellion stokes anger and wrath within God the Father, who responds with derisive laughter at his foes. In spite of their best efforts to destroy Christ, the Father raised Jesus from the dead and placed Jesus on the throne of the universe at the Father's right hand. Even though they killed him, they failed. The Lord Jesus Christ, next, the Lord Jesus Christ was placed on the throne of the universe at his ascension in what I believe was A.D. 30, even though Herod and Pilate and the Jews murdered him on the cross. No result that the forces of darkness can bring about can ever thwart God's plan, including even death itself. These same enemies continue to persecute the church in Acts and throughout history. Combined apostate... Religion with blasphemous civil authorities continue to work together. Then, not only in the death of Jesus, not only in the persecution of the saints then, but throughout history as well. These same enemies, they continue to refuse to accept that their actions against Jesus are futile. Next, the entire planet and all its rulers have been given to Christ as his inheritance, as his possession... All authority in heaven and on earth is His. That's what He said in the Great Commission. It's all His. And all those political and ecclesiastical rulers, not only is their effort against Jesus vain, it's futile, they will never get their way. If they don't repent of their rebellion against Jesus and go on to gladly serve and worship Him, they will eventually be destroyed by Him. The rod... Of Christ is mentioned in Psalm 2. That was the first sermon. The second sermon, we looked at how the disciples responded to persecution by being together. What did they do when they faced this terrible persecution, when the Sanhedrin gave them these severe threatenings? They didn't separate from one another. They didn't run away. They didn't blame one another. They came together and they shared their plight together, and they considered it to be a common plight, that which they faced together. And by remaining of one mind and of one heart and of one accord together, they faced the common threat together, and they maintained right thinking about Jesus and His kingdom and His commandments together. It's very important. Last week, this this is all leading up to this corporate kingdom prayer, you see. Last week, we looked at how the disciples prayed together, primarily noting how they called out to God based upon His Word, focusing upon His power in creation, His promises, specifically in this prayer, His promises in Psalm 2, and His overarching sovereignty and providence in all things. His providence in all things when they made this statement, which I'll read to us again, should really catch our attention. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. They well understand the providence of God, the sovereignty of God in all things. Their request for boldness and their request for God's displayed power shows forth their humility, their need, their commitment to His glory and to His name being elevated on high. They're not looking for personal security. They're not looking for personal comfort. They're not looking for guarantees that none of them will die. What happened to James? He was there. He was killed by Herod. Killed by the sword. They knew that some of them would face these severe threatenings and probably even death like Jesus did at the hands of these same people. And they didn't ask to not die. They didn't ask to not have their property confiscated. They didn't ask to not have their reputations destroyed. That's not what they asked for. They asked for boldness to be able to persevere and to do God's will in the face of all of these threats. They acknowledged their own weakness and their cowardice and that they would run away like Peter and John and all of them did the night that he was was arrested in Gethsemane. You know, we see John coming back later. We see Peter coming back later. They all abandoned him. This is fresh in their mind. Months earlier this happened, right? Not now, though. They'd had the boldness to to move forward with the kingdom pro- progression. But now they're facing this great threat. and They know they need boldness or they'll run away. They know that only God can heal. It wasn't Peter's hand. It wasn't John's hand that healed the lame man. They know it was only God's hand. And so they want His name and His glory. The name of Jesus Christ to be elevated on high that they would be able to continue to speak the Word of God, to speak the message of the resurrection, the crucified, resurrected, ascended, and reigning Jesus Christ. Now this week, we see the Lord's response to their prayers. May this encourage us all more and more rightly to respond to persecution the way that we should. And a stronger desire for corporate kingdom prayer, that we would understand that we as a people There's no reason why we as a people in this church and other churches cannot become this kind of understanding, one accord, sharing life together, praying kingdom prayers like this, and seeing responses in our life in the here and now. We should have this hope. We should have this expectancy. We can't demand it of God. He's not obligated. But there's no reason we shouldn't come to this with our default setting being to expect to see God do these things like they did. All right, so first of all, the context. The idea is when, it's immediately, it's when they had prayed, and where is they were assembled together, so they're all together and they're at this place, which we'll look at that. So as noted earlier in verse 23, and I've mentioned it already, the disciples are all together in one place. Their common threat and their common love for Christ and for one another draws them together. They know that they need each other. Even more, they know they need to be before the throne of grace together. So they followed through. They came together to begin with. They prayed together. They stayed together to the end. And they experienced these answered prayers together as a people. Also, note the word they. See the emphasis on this being a corporate reality. It was not one person or just a few people who prayed. Think about this. The entire group of disciples participated in the prayers that were lifted up before God. Could some of them had minds that drifted away during the corporate? I'm sure you've never done that, right? Could some of them have had minds that maybe drifted away a little bit during the corporate prayer? Sure. But basically what we have here is a group of people who are in this together. And all of them are exerting their mind and their heart to understand the prayers and to be a part of it So while it's unlikely that every person had prayed aloud, nevertheless, they were all listening and they were all agreeing with the prayers that were being lifted up to God. Sometimes when we pray, you'll hear someone say amen aloud. I hope that we're all saying amen in our hearts before God's throne together as we hear the prayers being prayed aloud. They had all agreed together to cry out to God, praising Him. Remember this one accord, it shows up in their togetherness around the throne of God, we indeed are lifted up. We are united in Christ before the throne of God. They understand they're there together. They're agreeing on calling on God as mighty creator, extolling Christ as the King of Kings and rejoicing in His supreme sovereignty over all history, including even their current persecution. They all agreed together regarding their need for God to join them in considering the severe threats. Look, O Lord, look upon what we are experiencing. And their need for boldness to overcome their tendency to panic and to flee. And their need for God to demonstrate his power via healings, signs, and wonders. They're in agreement of this as they go to their prayer. And it's it's this great faith in God and his word and his promises and his power and his providence that fills them as they come into this time of prayer together. And what does it lead to? A hopefulness, an expectancy as they cry out to God. It's not despair, it's not self-focused, it's not hopeless, it's not emphasizing the power of the Sanhedrin or the power of the Romans or the, the horrible death of a cross and how terrible all these threats are. That's not where they focus their prayers. They remember the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. They remember that all resistance to Him is futile. They remember He will destroy His and their enemies as they pray. They pray with the certainty that their persecutors will fail in their attempts to thwart Christ's kingdom's advancement. They know their own death and their own suffering may await them like happened to Jesus who said, Take up your cross and follow me. But their focus is upon Christ and His kingdom. They know death cannot separate them from eternal life with God and with His people. They know their own death will not thwart the kingdom's growth, but will rather, like Christ's death, assist its growth via the passion that martyrs spark amongst God's people. These are fearless people. They're dead already, if you will. They're dead to themselves. They're dead to their flesh. They're dead to the threats of this world. Oh, that we would be like them. Oh, that we would be like them. What happened? They all prayed. Let's take a look at this word. I've got the Greek word written out there for you. To want or to lack or to to desire or to long for something. That's the root of this word. Did you know that? And it leads to an asking, even a begging, to supplications before God. So I hope we can see what... They were experiencing what all true prayers are. Prayers to God flow from hearts aware of their own deficiencies. The disciples at that time were keenly aware that they lacked the necessary power and wisdom to deal with the severe threatenings from the Sanhedrin and the Romans who would surely back them. They knew they were impotent and ignorant compared to the powers of the Jews and the Romans. They knew they were cowards. Not only did they know the external threats that outstripped them and overwhelmed them, they knew they were cowards. They knew their own, their own failure inside. They knew they were cowards apart from God's help. They had no power in themselves to carry out healing, signs, wonders, no power to deal with the threats outside and from within. They, Their longing. They're desiring that which they do not have. And then only God can supply. So, what do they long for? What do they desire? They long for God to move. And they cry out to Him with a desperate kind of asking that knows He is their only hope. It's like a child crying out to its mother or father for assistance when the knee is skinned or the arm is broken. Or the major wound has taken place to the arm. They're not worried about the people around them. They're not worried about how their mom and dad look at them at that moment. They're not worried about how they appear. All they want is help. And they know there's no place to get it except from their mom and dad. Well, as Christians, we know that the only hope that we have is for God to help us. The disciples know that they will die or be destroyed and the gospel will not go to the ends of the earth unless Christ moves from His throne in heaven. You see, they probably have the resources in themselves to keep themselves safe. They can shut up and go home. Simple. All they've got to do to keep themselves safe is be quiet and go home. But that's not what they're interested in. They're interested in God's kingdom. So they asked for boldness, and they asked for God's power to be revealed in the here and now. That he would stretch out his hand to do these healings and these wonders. So, when did the answered prayers come? In this setting, God gave immediate answers to prayer. He chose to grant an immediate answer to their supplications. Now, we know that God immediately hears the prayers of His beloved children in Christ. Sometimes He answers us immediately, sometimes later, but He always answers the prayers of faith. Sometimes He answers and doesn't tell us that He answered. But we'll know someday. In this situation, they got an immediate answer, and brothers and sisters know that God does sometimes give immediate answers. Sometimes He does. All right, next, the first answered prayer. The place where they were assembled together was shaken. (laughs) So what about this word place? It's any portion or space that's been marked off, as it were, from a surrounding space. It's often used in the idea of an inhabited place like a city, a village, or a district. So we're not told where this place is. The text doesn't explicitly tell us where it is but we know it's in Jerusalem and it's very likely a large place in order to hold all the disciples it's very likely close to the temple or even a large room within the temple complex itself some postulate it's the home of Mary the mother of John Mark her place is mentioned in Acts 12 12. we'll get to that later some think perhaps this is where they are now as well others postulate it's an upper room in the temple complex itself either way This place is in the temple or likely within close walking distance to the temple. So they're still in Jerusalem. They're obeying God. They've not left Jerusalem. They've stayed there like like God told them to do. And to be his witnesses of his crucifixion, resurrection, and his ascension to the whole world. For the purpose of preaching repentance and remission of sin through his death. And eternal life through his resurrection. So what about this word, shaken? I've got the Greek word there for you in your notes. It is a motion produced by winds, storms, or waves. It's to agitate or to shake, to make something seem like it's going to fall over, to shake something very thoroughly, and also, interestingly, of a measure filled by shaking its contents together. So it's like God took this place and shook it so that the disciples would be shaken closer together. In addition, it's a word that can be used to reference a shaking down, a destruction of something, overthrowing it. It's not what happened to this structure, but it was just shaken. The feel of it seems like it could have been something that you might expect from a strong storm or from an earthquake. So as soon as the disciples finish their corporate prayer together, the entire space where they're praying is shaken. It's not shaken down to the ground and destroyed but it's shaken in a way similar to what a strong power would be like through weather or an earthquake. Has anyone here ever felt an earthquake? Felt the the ground shake a little bit? Okay. So if we're ever praying and we're crying out to God for signs and wonders to be revealed in the earth in order to glorify the name of Jesus and a really strong wind comes by at that moment and shakes the place, remember this. Or if there's an earthquake that shakes this place at that time, remember this text. I'm going to read to you from the revival in the Hebrides of a time when that happened. So Luke's inclusion of the shaking and its timing shows us this is an act of God in response to their prayer. He's specifically answering their prayers. Verse 30 it's right there. What do they ask for? That signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And as I said last week, one way to understand the rest of the book of Acts is the boldness of the disciples to speak the word of God and the mighty signs and wonders and healings of God done about them in the midst of that preaching. That's one way to understand this book. And the futility of the enemies as the gospel goes forth and takes root everywhere it goes. Okay, so does the Lord still do such wonders? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Does God still do this? Should we pray with the idea of expectancy that God still does this? Brothers and sisters, I really think this is probably a major weakness of the, uh, if you will, the denominational setting in which we find ourselves, Presbyterianism, okay? Okay. Yes, we believe that the canon is closed. No, we do not believe that speaking in tongues is some sort of miraculous heavenly language that's preserved for only a certain select people or other wrong teachings about tongues. We believe that tongues were given miraculously in order to communicate the gospel, that they were other languages given miraculously to someone able to speak in another language just like that in order to communicate the gospel. These wonders are still going on in the world. And I'll give you one example. Does the Lord still do such wonders? Yes. This is also from Duncan Campbell. There were a number prior, before this, there were multiple ministers present in this place when this happened. And in that moment, the stone-built house literally shook like a leaf. I immediately went to the Acts of the Apostles where it is recorded that they prayed and the place where they were assembled was shaken. As soon as this dear man stopped praying, I pronounced the benediction a little after 2 o'clock in the morning and went out to find the whole village ablaze with God. I went into one house and found nine women on their knees in the kitchen crying out to God. One woman saved that night has written some of the finest Gaelic hymns in our Gaelic hymnal. On the following Sunday, the road was black with the people walking two miles to the church. The drinking house in that particular village closed that night and never reopened since. This is God at work. A God sent revival is always a revival of holiness. Brothers and sisters, in order to be a part of something like this, God always brings people who pray beforehand, who believe that He still acts in this fashion. And that's another part of what's reported in this, in this course of events that I'm not reading to you, is how God moved in the hearts of this 82 of an 82-year-old and 85-year-old woman uh, these two women and they were praying like crazy for this believing God to do this the elders got involved the people got involved and they began crying out to God it all it all actually it all started now that I think about it with a message from the presbytery to the churches asking them to consider their spiritual state and to stir themselves up to prayer and then those two women took it on and then it spread But this is preceded by prayer. We've talked about that before. And prayer occurs as the revival goes on. Prayer precedes it, prayer is a fruit of it, prayer fuels it all the way through. All right. The next answered prayer is that they spoke the word of God with boldness. It says they spoke the word of God with boldness. Again, it's not just one person. they prayed, not just one person received boldness to speak the word of God. They prayed together, they spoke the word of God with boldness together. Here's the principle. Corporate kingdom prayer leads to corporate kingdom boldness in speaking the word of God. So what does this mean? This means it doesn't matter if you're an extrovert or an introvert. It, the, your cognitive functioning does not have anything to do with whether you receive boldness from God. The kind of personality that you have is not what's in view here. God grants corporate boldness to people who come together expectantly filled with hope with this kind of understanding, this kind of one accord, and they stay together and they pray together like this. God gives those people boldness in speaking the Word of God. Now you remember that the Sanhedrin saw this in Peter and John, even though they were unskilled, uneducated men, and what did they remember? They remembered that they had been with Jesus. It marked them out, and it will mark out any people who are also caught up in it. May that be so of us. Now, again, I'm going to go back. Note the single purpose of their boldness. Okay, This is the same purpose, as I said already, behind God granting the gift of tongues in Acts chapter 2, as we have learned. The gift of tongues is given in order to complete the mission of preaching the gospel to the world. God accelerated it through giving the gift of tongues. There were people there from all over the world. It would have been a very long process to try to get the, the gospel message into their native language with the greatest clarity, like was done. They could add translators and things of that nature. It wasn't needed. They were able to give it to them in their native tongue for the purpose of getting the message across with clarity. So the boldness of God is given to the people of God for the purpose of speaking the word of God unto the advancement of the kingdom of God for the glory of God. Okay? This is why boldness is given. When all of these things line up, then boldness is at work. God, God's boldness, the boldness of Mount Zion. So let's look at this word, boldness. I've got it there in the Greek for you. Now listen carefully to all the aspects of this definition, okay? Because it does go beyond just courage in the face of threats. It's more than that. Listen to all the nuances of the meaning of this Greek word: freedom in speaking unreservedness in speech, openly, frankly, without concealment, without ambiguity or circumlocution. It means you go all the way around the point and you never get to it. Without the use of figures and comparisons, free and fearless confidence, cheerful courage, boldness, assurance. So we've emphasized heavily, I think, the idea that boldness is continuing to speak the word of God in the face of any threat. And that's certainly the heart of it, courage. But there's more. When a person speaks with boldness, they open up to their hearers all that is necessary to fully and clearly communicate the desired message. That's the purpose of this kind of speaking. They do not hold back any information necessary to clarify the message at that moment, no matter what this may mean for their own well-being. Because they are focused upon Christ and His glory, they are freed from the fear of personal loss and brought into a cheerful form of courage. You see the cheerfulness. They're not afraid to die. That'll make you cheerful. They're brought into a cheerful form of courage and assurance in the midst of their communication, that will set them apart. It makes this kind of person conspicuous. They stand out. They're different in how they communicate. People will spot that they have been with Jesus. People will notice these things about those who've been granted this Holy Spirit boldness. Now, this definition helps us peer into the motive of boldness. So boldness helps you to do things and to speak things in a certain way, but it gives you something on the inside that makes it happen. What is it? It's a new motive. It's a persistent motive. It's a rock steady motive. But their single aim is to ensure the message is delivered fully, accurately, and clearly. The whole message, the right message, and not confusing. They're not held back by fear of persecution or fear of being rejected or disliked or shamed, fear of not fitting in. It's not a part of the motive of boldness. The only motive of boldness is to hear Jesus say, well done. That's it. That's what the bold person is after. They're not motivated by personal gain or personal loss, but they desire to obey and to honor Christ because he is worthy and he alone is worthy. And how do they do that? By speaking the word of God just as he commanded them. Giving the message that he gave. Nothing more, nothing less. Living the message that he gave. Nothing more, nothing less. So, we're now getting into the next part about how this happens. You see, you can only be this kind of presence because boldness comes from the embrace of God. Write that one down. Boldness comes from the embrace of God. God comes to you and he dwells within your soul and he puts the fire of his holy presence in your heart and in your mind. That's the only source of boldness. That's it. And that's what the text calls being filled with the Holy Spirit. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Brothers and sisters, this is a corporate thing that happens here. Note the all. The corporate outcome of corporate kingdom prayer is, is laid before us here. The entire place where they assembled was shaken by God. The whole place, not just part of it. They all spoke the word of God with boldness. How did this occur? There's only one way. They were all filled the Holy Spirit our souls are a barren desert and they become dry without his presence but when he moves and pours out his Holy Spirit within us this filling is in the context of the outpouring what is the symbol that we use in baptism what is the element we use in baptism water and it is a symbol of the Holy Spirit are we dry inside without God you get dry every day without God. Can he fill you one time and that's it? It's over. Can he fill you so much right now that you don't need to be filled again in a week or a month? No. And so God has poured out his very presence into their hearts. He's given them an experiential moment of his loving presence, the forgiveness that is theirs in Christ the absence of guilt, the removal of fear in the holy presence of their Creator. They dwell like in Eden, happily in His very presence before His face with joy and gladness. We forget that, don't we? I mean, our sin screams at us. Our sin accuses us. We accuse one another. We need God to work in us, to give us His Spirit. Amen? So I want us to note how the Lord works in the setting of corporate worship and prayer and to see that this is an essential spiritual discipline to grow up in Christ, to be sanctified. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, come to church every Sunday. If you're not here, go somewhere else. And the more opportunities at corporate kingdom prayer you get, go for it. Find a church right down the street from you if you can't come here. And pray corporately with God's people as often as you have the opportunity. Of course, God fills us in our personal prayers. The Holy Spirit has poured out us, upon us in our personal spiritual disciplines as well. But you're missing out on all of the opportunities to be filled if you're not regularly with God's people. And I say the more, the, regularly with God's people in corporate prayer. And I say the more the better. All right. this idea of filled deserves uh, some of our time the Greek word here is to fill to be fulfilled, to be filled there's another Greek word that's used for filling as well and it has to do with being completely filled up, that's the one that Paul uses in Ephesians when he says be filled with the Spirit so this concept here of being filled with the Spirit we see is this repetitive action the repetitive action of the Holy Spirit for the people of God Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. We're told it was predicted in Luke 1 and then it's described in Luke 4. So Jesus, the perfect man, God in His infinite wisdom, Jesus needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let that sink in. He demonstrates to us what perfect faith looks like. And He receives the indwelling and the the overflowing of the Holy Spirit from His Father. There's also... Repetitive filling that we notice in the lives of the disciples and the apostles and also in the life of Paul. And I'll briefly show. just look at these scriptures that show this repetitive action of the filling of the Spirit. Acts 2.4 and Acts 4.8 show this to us. 2.4 says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's the day of Pentecost. Acts four eight Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel. So we see it happened to Peter again there. And then in today's text, it happens again. So there's this repetitive filling of the Holy Spirit that we need. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit over and over and over again in our lives. Paul had this as well in his life. Acts 9.17, And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Was this his initial conversion? Was it something that occurred after his conversion? We don't know. But Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit here in Acts 9 and then Acts 13. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. So, we see in the Scriptures this repetitive, recurring filling of the Holy Spirit. How often do you think you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? So how does our Lord bless us with boldness and with His powerful presence? How does He do this? Only by the filling of the Holy Spirit. And He is ever glad to give His Holy Spirit to all who ask Him. He's ever glad to give His Holy Spirit to all who ask Him. It's not a riddle It's not a maze. You don't have to get to a certain level of Christian maturity first. You just have to believe God. That's it. And ask Him to pour out upon you His Holy Spirit from heaven. Luke 13, 9-13. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. If the Son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if He asks for a fish, will He give Him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if He asks for an egg, will He offer Him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So, what's keeping you from asking the Father in Heaven to give you His Holy Spirit? Is there something keeping you from asking? I hope not. The Father delights for us to ask. And essentially that's what they were asking for when they asked for boldness. When they asked for the outpouring of His mighty power on the earth to the signs and the wonders and the healings. So some questions to bring this home for us. you see the importance of being all together in one place? It's highlighted for us here in this text. Next. Do you listen carefully to the one who is praying aloud? We're going to have a time of corporate prayer here shortly. Do you listen carefully to the one who is praying aloud? I I I know a story. um, It's kind of a funny story, but it's also a sad story. In this church some years in the past... um, we were going to corporate prayer, and one of the kids yawned and stretched his arms. He said, nap time. That's kind of funny, but it's kind of sad, isn't it? Right? I remember being a new Christian, and uh, Pastor John Oliver, he would pray the pastoral prayer, and he would pray the pastoral prayer. I'm here to tell you, he covered everything and more. And I would sometimes feel that way as he would go to prayer because I'd be so tired, and I'd just like, okay, I'm going to get a little shut eye. Do you listen carefully to the one who's praying aloud? Do you stir yourself up as we go into the time of corporate prayer? If not, how can you say amen in your heart if you didn't listen? I mean, imagine this. We're all together in Christ. All of you who trust in Christ, who are here, have been united with Christ by His Spirit through faith. And the Scriptures tell us we are lifted up. We are seated in the heavenlies with Him. Right? Right? So if you're paying attention right now, worshiping God through the preaching of His Word, your seat in heaven is filled with somebody awake. Okay? Now, if you fall asleep during corporate prayer or during this or your brain drifts away and you're not here, what does that seat in heaven look like at that moment? Well, I don't know the answer, but I doubt it's someone who's like really awake and attentive. I think it's going to show up there too. So let's all... Make it our goal to be super awake in heaven together as we worship God on this day and every day. Okay, next. If you're praying aloud, if you're one of the ones who prays aloud during worship, do you take care to pray aloud clearly and loudly enough to be heard and to be understood? I know the young men, that might be a little bit of a challenge, right? So this is something maybe the young men need to hear more than the older men. And do you pray with all the hearers in mind? Of course, first God. But that there are those here who are listening to you pray who by God's grace would like to be lifted up with you into heaven during that time. Next. When you pray aloud, you pray aloud according to God's power and God's promises and God's providence based on what you know from His Word. So that's what they did, right? They drew drew forth God as creator, His power. They drew forth the promises of Christ as King no matter what the enemies are going to do. And they trusted in His providence knowing that He had foreordained all of these events before they happened. When you pray aloud, do you bring these truths from God's word into the prayers. Now, here's something about preparing for our corporate prayer time. Are you taking care to be of one mind before we come to corporate prayer? We've already talked about being together in one place, but are we taking care to be of one mind? We need to share with one another ahead of time. We need to know what's going on in one another's lives ahead of time. This is why we love it when we get all the prayer requests that come in before our monthly prayer time so we can all be sharing one another's burdens together. Those lists that we send out are also very useful for you to read through them and study them and know what's going on in the lives of the people sitting around you right now and sitting with you in heaven. What do we share ahead of time? First and foremost, in the Word, we share one mind about Christ about His kingdom, and about His commandments. We're all together. We're of one mind about who He is, about what He's doing with His kingdom, and what he has commanded us, His people, to do, like they were then. It was very simple. He was crucified for the sins of His people. He was raised from the dead by God the Father. He was ascended into heaven and made the king of the universe. And He told them to go to Jerusalem and to Samaria and through the ends of the earth And to share, to preach this message as his witnesses. This message of repentance and remission of sins to the whole world. Are we of one mind? And also, are we of one mind about the threats and the sufferings that we are currently facing? Certainly in regard to persecutions, but in regards to just our larger lives of what we're going through. What we can share with one another to bear one another's burdens together. So when we come into this place, we are siblings. We are a family going before the throne of God. So do you arrive ready to capitalize on corporate prayer time? Okay? Because I'll tell you, you know, a lot of times it can just be that other thing we do during worship and we haven't really put thought into it ahead of time and prayed and looked to the Lord and looked to the Word and talked to one another and built our relationships in such a way that that corporate prayer time is maximally effective next what's our focus when we pray when we're in prayer together when you pray aloud or in your mind what is your focus is it for personal comforts personal security and personal objectives or is it for christ and for his kingdom for his church See, a lot of times the sufferings that we're experiencing, the difficulties that we have in our lives exist because we haven't focused on Christ and His kingdom and His church. And the way that we get delivered out of many of the sufferings that we have in our lives, not all of them, but many of them, is through returning to a focus on Christ and His kingdom and His church. Our life's goals, our life's aim, our life's motive is to be involved in Christ's mission. Next, about prayer. When you think of prayer, do you think of being near death in a desert? That would be a a helpful analogy for for you to get a sense of your heart. And if you don't pray very much, it's because you think you've got plenty. Beggars who are hungry ask for food. Beggars who are thirsty ask for water. Beggars who are naked ask for clothing. Brothers and sisters, we are thirsty and hungry and naked without Jesus, without his constant outpouring of his spirit to us. And the way that we go and drink, the way that we go and eat, the way that we go and continue to rejoice in being clothed in him is through prayer. Through prayer, We are too weak. We can't deal with these things that we face So prayers from weakness are the real thing. Are you empty? Do you you taste of your weakness? Are you so aware of your own ignorance and your own impotence? The strength of your sin, the power of this world working against you, the appearing hopelessness of of the situation in your life, whatever it is. Prayers from weakness. That's the real thing. That's the real thing. So what are your longings? What are your desires when you go to prayer? Is it for God's will, for His kingdom, for the name of Christ, for the advancement of His kingdom, for the revival that we read about throughout the sermon, or is it for personal deliverance from difficulties? And what this leads to is a hopeful, expectant praying because we know our Father loves us and He delights to feed us. And to care for us. And to give us all we need to do His will. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and you'll starve. No. No. And you'll go naked in the street. No. You'll have nothing to drink. No. You'll be without any security in your life. No. You'll be given the food, the clothing the shelter and the security and the relational cohesiveness that you need to participate in advancing the kingdom of God. And in those things, you will find His hand and you will find pleasure in all of these gifts that He gives because you're putting them to work for His kingdom. So how are we made bold to speak the Word of God? We know it's through the outpouring of the Spirit, but what does God do within us? Well, the main thing is that we're freed from our controlling fears. We're freed from our controlling fears. Every one of us, apart from Christ, and even while we're still on this earth, has controlling fears. I don't mean the little ones that are gnats. I mean the ones that control you, that shackle you, that keep you from seeing God for who He is, that keep you from believing things that He says in His Word, that are associated with lies that you tell yourself and lies that you believe. Boldness frees us from our controlling fears because love casts out fear and that's what God does when He comes into our souls by His Spirit is He pours out His love in our hearts and the infinite ocean, the endless universe of His affection for us, His children is why He made tear ducts so we can just weep with gladness that our Father loves us like this. This is how we're made bold, is when His love and who He is, His glory, His majesty, His condescension, His knowledge, His wisdom, His suffering, all of who He is. When we are touched by His Spirit, to not just know of Him, but that He dwells in us and experientially gives us a taste of His embrace from heaven, We're freed from controlling fears and we're brought in to the controlling love of God because it is the love of Christ that compels us. And that's the only thing that can fight against our sin is when we are touched by His love. Only by the filling of the Holy Spirit and it needs to happen over and over again that's how God made it. It needs to happen over and over again that's how God made it. The purpose Of the spiritual disciplines. Is to walk in the paths. Where Jesus has promised to meet us. The purpose of the spiritual disciplines. Is to walk in the paths. Where our God. Has promised to grant us. The experience of his embrace. You do not partake. Of the spiritual disciplines. You will not. Believe God loves you. Not here. You may know it up here. you won't believe it here. And it will show up in your life. Whether it's fear, whether it's anger, whether it's lust, whatever other way you're going to go to get that thing taken care of inside of you, it'll show up. It's true for all of us. But God's love frees us from all of these things. And He gives us the power to obey Him, the desire to obey Him, and the desire to actually mortify our flesh, as was prayed this morning. How do wonders and healings occur? Only by God's outstretched hand. Only by God's outstretched hand. But he does insert his people's prayers in there somewhere. (laughs) Okay? We don't do it. It's not our power. But our prayers are a part of this. May we have faith like they did. May we know God's word like they did. And may we be people who face everything like they did together. With one mind focused on Christ and His ways. Praying according to His word. Expectantly, hopefully, awaiting the outpouring of His Spirit. That we would drink deeply of Him over and over together as His people. May it happen even right here this morning. And may it occur every Lord's Day that we are together. May it even be the watchword for our gathering that we were filled with the Holy Spirit of God when we were together. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice to be Your children. Oh God, at times like this, it's, the Gospel seems too good to be true. When we consider our own sin and failures, our neglect... Of you and of one another we consider the powerful forces of this world and the extent of our failure as individuals and as your people Lord it seems like it can't be true that all resistance to Christ is futile and that we can pray expectantly but Lord we do believe in this day in this day we do believe that you are the King of Kings Lord Jesus Christ In this day, we do believe that all of Your enemies set up against You are wasting their time. And we do lift our hearts and minds to You, O God, with one voice, with one accord, asking You to pour out Your Holy Spirit, to fill us with Your Spirit to overflowing once again, day in and day out as well, Father, that we may have all that we need to obey You, to do Your will, and to participate in all the good work that You plan to do in this earth before we are transported to glory. In Jesus' name, amen.